Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 132 for the second half of May 2015. This episode is going to be another live recording from one of my live presentations, modeled a little bit after Leonard Nimoy's In Search of television series. It was presented in front of a live audience at the Denver Comic-Con on May 24th, 2015, to about 75 to 100 people. I was bordered on two sides by other sessions, that some of which had more people and a lot of laughter, so I played to that a little bit when there were opportune moments. So you'll hear both laughter from my audience, as well as laughter from the sides, which it'll be a little bit interesting. I also suffered a minor AV issue in the middle, but recovered, so you'll hear some fumbling there, as well as uh, a lot of applause for some reason right after the recovery. For those who are interested, I have finally provided my slides as a PDF on the show notes page for this episode of the podcast on the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. I also need to announce that it is that time of year when work is going to get crazy, so episodes may come out a little less regularly, especially during July when the NASA New Horizons space probe is encountering Pluto. I'm still going to keep to the two-per-month schedule this year, but they may not be out exactly on the 1st and 16th of the month, even though they will be back or forward dated to the 1st or 16th, much like this episode, which actually is coming out about 10 days after it says it's coming out. But for those listening to this in 2017, you're not going to notice and you're wondering what I'm talking about. With all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my exploration of Planet X and whether it could be out there, and if so, what form it could take. All right, uh, so thank you all for coming today, uh, especially coming here as opposed to Batman, choosing science over Batman. It's a good call. This session is titled Skeptical Science or something like that, and I modeled it after uh, Leonard Nimoy. So this is actually not just a gratuitous picture to try to draw you in, but in the 1970s, some of you may be aware that Leonard Nimoy had a show called In Search Of, where he presented a lot of ideas that might be considered outside of the mainstream, and he didn't choose an approach where you did a straight-up uh, debunking and said that it's wrong, nor did he choose an approach that was a straight-up uh, credulous, this is real, this is what's going on, but rather he chose an approach where he presented the evidence and looked at what was really going on, what could this be, and so that's the approach that I've taken in this talk. Also, the original description was... Uh, let's looking at or let's look at Planet X, um, pyramids on Mars, and various other things. But I decided to really focus down on Planet X because that's it's usually a perpetual interesting idea, an interesting class of phenomena that uh, has a lot of different parts to it. And I'm going to go through a couple of those parts today. Uh, this talk is very roughly 35 minutes or so, so there will be plenty of time for questions uh, on this as well as anything potentially related. So along those lines, I want to tell you a little bit about me first, so this perhaps makes a little bit more sense on where I'm coming from. So I've been involved in what you might call the modern scientific skepticism movement uh, since about uh, 2008, so about seven years or so. 
what I try to do is I try to bring science to people, to the general public, and I try to focus on misconceptions and pseudoscience and conspiracies and all these different things that are related to astronomy and related fields, so physics and geology and lots of that kind of stuff, because that's my background. Uh, I am a trained geophysicist, but through an astrophysics department, so I have that kind of physics, geology, and astronomy background. I also do run a podcast and blog, both called Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, where I discuss stuff like Planet X, as well as uh, stuff like the true color of Mars, conspiracies related to the Big Bang Theory or black holes, as well as, uh, well, there was a lot going on in 2012, so I, I had a lot of that kind of stuff with pole shifts and other things that I, I talked about. And so that's really the approach I take and the kind of material that I like to get uh, into and sort of dig my teeth into and see what's really going on. And so why am I talking about Planet X? One of the reasons is that Planet X is big. And I don't just mean the hypothetical Planet X is very large. I mean that the phenomena is really big. It's out there in the popular culture. It's out there in media, it's out there in the bowels of the internet, it's out there on late night paranormal radio programs. For example, I was just listening to a radio program that boasts over half a million listeners every night. Just this past week, they had on someone talking about Planet X and saying that Planet X is real and it's going to do stuff to Earth. And so it's because of that that I thought that Planet X would be really good to talk about for this kind of discussion on skeptical science or science and skepticism together. Another reason is that NASA's New Horizons spacecraft is, okay. yes, it's a great spacecraft. Uh, it, is, <laughs> it is zooming towards Pluto right now at something like uh, 14 kilometers per second. You can get from LA to New York in four and a half minutes going that speed. It will get there, it will pass by Pluto, it will actually go between Pluto and its largest moon, Charon, just on July 14th or 15th, depending on your time zone. So this summer is going to be really, really cool. And Pluto was sort of the original Planet X. And so for good or for bad, I expect that Planet X is going to get more play in the media, both mainstream and non-mainstream media over this summer because of the New Horizons spacecraft. But besides that, Planet X is used to generate fear. How many of you remember just three years ago, 2012, and the doomsday stuff that was all over the place and not just in a bad movie? Okay, so at least 10% of you are participating. So, <laughs> the 2012 phenomena, the end of the Mayan calendar, was insane. And for those of us who are both in science as well as like to interface with people who haven't well, some people might say wasted, but spent, say, 10 years of their life uh, trying to get a PhD, a lot of us were just horrified at the stuff that was going on with 2012 because there was so much fear being generated by people, and not necessarily the mainstream media, but by other people and the Internet, and I mean, the Internet's really big, and social media and other stuff that was going on. And so fear is a big motivator, and if I can stop someone from going out and killing their pets and then finding a cave to live in for the next few months because they think that doomsday is coming, then I consider that a success. And you might be thinking that's a crazy example. Actually, it's a true example. Uh, there are people who tend to do that during doomsday things, and 
uh, one person that I heard actually did kill their pets because they thought that Planet X was coming and going to kill them all. And they thought that would be more humane. So that is a sobering reminder that pseudoscience is not necessarily as benign as some people might like to think. So for that reason, I do this kind of work and Planet X presents a lot of those kinds of phenomena. So with that incredibly long introduction, the concept of Planet X is that it is an as yet undiscovered planet that is somewhere out there in the solar system. And as I said, Planet X involves a whole grouping of different phenomena. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to discuss about five or six of them during this, uh, well, would-be panel, but the other people couldn't make it. One of them had to launch a spacecraft, so. <laughs> that, that's what happens when you work at an institute that does that kind of stuff. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history first, because Planet X is not just uh, what you might call a new age term or a conspiratorial term. Planet X actually has a history and a basis in what everyone would call real science. So since the ancient times, we knew of six planets. There was Earth, and then in order, out from Earth, there was Mars, Venus, there was Mercury, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those were the planets that we could see with the unaided eye, because thousands of years ago we didn't have anything that could aid our eye. And so we had these six planets, and what they were were simply dots that didn't behave like all of the other dots in the sky, because they didn't have YouTube, and they didn't have Facebook, and they didn't have television three, four, five thousand years ago, so at night they either went to sleep or they looked up at the sky, and they watched these objects in the sky, and the stars all moved overhead all the same way. It's these six, well, four, or five, five, because we're not counting Earth, these five dots moved differently from the stars. Sometimes they moved with the stars, sometimes they moved against the stars, sometimes they did a little loop, and nobody really knew why. And so they were just called wanderers, or planets. And so that's all that a planet was for thousands of years. Then with the scientific revolution, we started to be able to aid our eye and to look at these planets with something that Galileo perfected called a telescope, and the first person to actually look up with that telescope and to record what he saw. With all of those kinds of observations, we were able to create or develop or find or codify, whatever you want to say, the laws of planetary motion. And it was Johannes Kepler who was able to figure out how the planets move and describe how the planets move and predict where the planets would be. He was really the one who took us, you've all probably heard of the Copernican Revolution, but it was Johannes Kepler and his laws of planetary motion that really took us from a geocentric universe where everything went around the Earth into a heliocentric universe where everything went around the sun. It took many centuries later before we realized that, no, not everything goes around the sun, just stuff in the solar system did. And so we developed our definition of what a planet was. About 150 years later, a guy by the name of Johann Bode, along with a guy with the last name of Titus, developed the Titus-Bode Law, which is a mathematical relationship that predicted where the known planets would be in terms of their distance from the Sun. It predicted where Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn would be. It also predicted there would be something in between Mars and Jupiter. So at that point, we thought, well, this seems to work. Maybe there's something there. It also predicted, if you kept carrying it outwards, it predicted that there would be other objects out there in the solar system. Just nine years later, William Herschel took his telescope, he looked up, he saw a blue fuzzy blob 
Over the course of many nights, he observed it moving, and using Kepler's laws, he was able to calculate an orbit, and he was able to figure out that this was not a comet, which was the only other kind of object that we knew of at the time in the solar system. It was not a comet. It behaved sort of on a normal circular path around the sun, and so after a lot of correspondence back and forth, which took a very long time because they didn't have Twitter, <laughs> they were able to decide that this is a genuine bona fide planet, the first one ever discovered in modern times. 20 years later, a guy with the last name of Piazzi, does anyone speak Italian? Okay, good. So Piazzi discovered Ceres. This was an object, and Piazzi really was a fan of the Titus Bode law. He was looking for something between Mars and Jupiter. And when he saw Ceres, it was there. It was right between Mars and Jupiter, right where they predicted it would be, plus or minus a little bit. And so they were expecting it. They had another planet. Unfortunately for him, more stuff was found. Over the next few months and years, more stuff was found in that region between Mars and Jupiter, and we had instead the asteroid belt, and Ceres was demoted to an asteroid. And then nine years ago, the International Astronomical Union decided to semi-repromote it to a dwarf planet. And right now, the Dawn spacecraft is in orbit around it, and uh, I'm finding some very weird stuff. Uh, how many of you heard of the mysterious bright spots on Ceres? Yeah, so those of you who haven't, take a look. They're, they're really weird. Uh, in some of the darker corners of the internet, people are talking about how the UFOs accidentally left their lights on. <laughs> Fast forward about 40 years, and mathematicians and astronomers were watching Uranus. And Uranus was not where it was predicted to be. It sort of wandered. It was perturbed, uh, or in a non-human way. It, it was not where exactly it was predicted to be. And these mathematicians said, well, okay, let's assume that physics is real. Let's assume that the laws of planetary motion work. What could perturb Uranus? And they calculated that it could be a single other planet, a missing planet, a planet X, if you will. These mathematicians sent their calculations of where this planet should be in the solar system to uh, an astronomical observer or observatory, and Johann Galle got it that night. He looked up exactly where they said it should be within the distance of if you were to close one eye and hold your thumb out and look at your thumb within that distance on the sky, he discovered the planet Neptune. That's to me, is really cool, because that's a very good example of science making a specific prediction and a specific observation that confirms it. It's, I would use other language, but there are children in the room, so it's really cool. And at that time, because again, we were predicting it, and this actually still kind of sort of fit with the Titus Bode law, it wasn't even a debate. This was a planet. Keep in mind, though, at this point, we still don't really have a definition of what a planet is. So... We watched Uranus, we watched Neptune, and their orbits were still a little bit perturbed. We couldn't figure it out. And so people went back and said, hey, Neptune, this, this really worked. Let's try to figure out where this other planet could be. They looked and looked and looked and didn't find anything for over 60 years. In the very early 1900s, a wealthy man by the name of Percival Lowell, who lived in Boston, Massachusetts, came from lot of money. Uh, I think he made his money or his family made their money on the, in the printing business. He decided or that 
he was going to look for this planet X because he was a really big fan of astronomy, he liked astronomy, and he was not content to use his family's money to build an observatory in Boston, Massachusetts. Rather, he decided to go about 2,000 miles away to Flagstaff, Arizona and build an observatory there. And that observatory still exists today. It is still run by the Lowell family. It does cost money to get in, fortunately, even if you're a scientist and astronomer. But even if you're a student, it costs money to get in, but that's beside the point. So they built this observatory, and he looked for Planet X. He spent nearly a decade of his life, the last years of his life, searching for Planet X and didn't find it. In 1929, the director of the observatory said, well, this guy, Clyde Tombaugh, is coming to me. He wants to do stuff. Hey, let's give him this task. Uh, and so what Clyde Tombaugh was supposed to do was he was supposed to look at series of photographs taken over different nights and use a machine that basically blinked them. So it would, in about a split second, switch from one picture to another. And if you go to Lowell Observatory and pay the entry fee, then you can see the actual machine that was used in order to do this. And it's really big and really tedious to do, but watching these pictures blinking back and forth, your brain and your eye can pick up stuff that moves from night to night. And fortunately for Clyde Tombaugh, before he went crazy, doing this night after night, in early 1930, he discovered Pluto. And again, this was not even a question at this point of whether or not it was a planet, because hey, we were looking for it. We were looking for Planet X to explain these orbital perturbations. Unfortunately for Clyde Tombaugh, he did not discover anything else, even though he kept looking for years and years and years. But this idea that we had a new planet, the first one discovered in the 21st century, and it was American, was really big. Unfortunately, in 1989, Voyager 2 flew by Neptune. And I say unfortunately because it was by very precisely tracking how Voyager 2 passed by Neptune that we were able to figure out Neptune's mass how much it effectively weighed to much better accuracy than we ever could before. We revised Neptune's mass down by 0.5%, and in doing that, all of the orbital perturbations to Neptune and Uranus went away. And suddenly we didn't need Pluto, we didn't need a planet X. The solar system worked, at least with normal, everyday science. And so that was the case of Planet X, and at least for scientists in general, this idea of a missing planet needed to explain this stuff literally for 200 years went away. And then, of course, in 2006, we had the International Astronomical Union uh, demote Pluto to a dwarf planet, but that's a political issue that I'm not really going to get into other than show the funny picture. <laughs> so with that kind of background, I'm going to now get into different ideas of what Planet X could be. And one of the main ones, one of the really big ones that's out there, is popularized or was popularized by the late Zacharias Sitchin, who claimed to interpret Sumerian texts and tablets. And uh, Zacharias Sitchin claimed that Planet X was called Nibiru, and that on it lived an alien race called the Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki came to Earth about 450,000 years ago, and they came to Earth to mine gold. Uh, I think that they were probably crossed with leprechauns, at least. <laughs> Maybe those got mixed in with the tablets. So they came here to mine gold. Uh, Sitchin claimed that it was in order to put gold dust in their atmosphere because they were experiencing climate change. And so by putting gold dust in their atmosphere, they could mitigate this climate change, and uh, then they got really lazy and decided that 
they didn't want to mine gold anymore because it was hot in Africa or something, and so they engineered the human race in order to mine the gold for them. And that's, of course, why we all love gold, at least according to Zachariah Sitchin. Um, I'm being a little bit gratuitous here. We can get back to this idea of a planet X. The main idea for him, for planet X, is that it is an object on a 3,600-year orbit. Earth takes one year to go around the sun. I try to emphasize that because according to the latest polls by the National Science Edu uh, Foundation, 25% uh, of Americans do not know that it takes Earth one year to go around the sun. <laughs> Our sun. The sun. Sol. The big bright one that's uh, somewhere up there. <laughs> the closest star to us. So yes, it takes one year for Earth to go around the sun. This planet would take about 3,600 years to go around the sun. Uh, Pluto takes about 248 years to go around the sun. It has only completed less than half an orbit since it was discovered. Uh, but this one, 3,600 years, which seems like a long time. So the question is, what does the scientific method say? What does known science say? And what can we do in order to figure out if this could really work? Well, first off, we can use Kepler's laws, basic science, to calculate how far it would be from the sun at its farthest point. If it is on a 3,600-year orbit and it gets as close to the sun as roughly Earth, it doesn't really matter. It could be Earth, Venus, Mars. It doesn't quite matter, uh, it would have to go then as far from the sun as six times Pluto's distance. That is 240 times the distance between Earth and the sun. That's... <laughs> I can do basic math, thank you. So, <laughs> it is, uh, it would be really far, far out there, as they might say, uh, far out, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, the problem with that uh, is... <laughs> the problem with that is for life to evolve, it would be really, really hard. I'm not going to say it's impossible. Uh, one of the things that uh, we try to emphasize in critical thinking and skepticism is that it's really hard to prove a negative. So I'm not going to say it's impossible for life to evolve on a situation like that, where it gets as cold as negative about 440 degrees Fahrenheit, and then when it's closest to the sun, about positive 100 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on exactly how close you're going to go. That's a really big 550-degree temperature swing. Again, maybe not impossible for life to evolve, especially, I don't know, if it's a mile underground or something, but really, really hard. Hard especially for intelligent life, like the Anunnaki who have mastered space travel and genetic engineering and want to mine gold to put it in their atmosphere to make it warmer or something. So that's one of the first issues. Another issue, and this is something that I like to point out, is that the asteroid belt is stable. Uh, did any of you see the Bakke and Bakke talk yesterday about asteroids? One person? Okay. So it was a talk where they went through, at least I was told, uh, different misconceptions about asteroid belts. Like you tend to see in movies how you have a ship going through this asteroid belt and all the rocks are really big and they're right there and you have to almost do this sort of zigzag pattern. The asteroid belt is not like that. You can go to one asteroid and you would be lucky if you could see another asteroid from where you are. That said, the asteroid belt is really, really dynamically stable. We can see groups of asteroids that came from the same original body that broke up, and we can track those back literally hundreds of millions of years. Now, let's say you take a trampoline uh, about the size of this room, 
And each of you are marbles on that trampoline. So this would be you on the asteroid belt in the gravitational field of the asteroid belt. Now let's say I took a 500-pound bowling ball and just ran it through the middle of the aisle on this trampoline. What would happen is that the marbles would go all over the place. Now let's say, okay, the marbles on the false, far side of the room, or maybe, you know, if I'm trampoline went to the adjacent rooms, which are getting more laughs than this one, if they went really, really far, you might not feel it. But let's run this bowling ball, as the asteroids are going around to their orbit, let's run this bowling ball through about two and a half million times over the course of the solar system's history. The marbles would be scattered. It would be, there probably would not actually be an asteroid belt anymore. However, we have a dynamically stable asteroid belt. And I'm glad that I keep making my points. So, to me, this indicates that you cannot have a planet X on a 3,600-year orbit that is at least going through the asteroid belt. The other problem is that Zachariah Sitchin is the only person to ever come up with this idea and this interpretation of the cuneiform tablets. We actually have translations of these tablets. No one else says that this is what happened. And in addition to that, this is a planet that's allegedly on a 3,600-year orbit. You would expect that, say, the ancient Egyptians, which recorded everything, the Chinese astronomers, recorded, who recorded everything. I mean, we, the earliest written record of comets come from ancient Chinese texts. None of them record a planet coming through. And so I would posit then that this idea of a 3,600-year orbit for Planet X, probably not true. The next idea about Planet X is that it is approaching from the South Pole. Uh, the basic idea is that it's coming up from the South Pole. Uh, we only have one telescope there, the South Pole Telescope, and it's secret, even though everybody knows about it. <laughs> and that the reason why we have this South Pole Telescope is because that is the only place that we can see Planet X approaching. In fact, if you were to do an internet search, and I chose Google for this one, and you were to type in South Pole Telescope, the first two suggested completions are Nibiru, from Zachariah Sitchin, and Conspiracy, because it's a conspiracy, apparently. Uh, the actual reason that we want a telescope in the South Pole is because it's nice and cold, and so you can view stuff that is uh, a different wavelength than visible light. That's, that's beside the point for most conspiracy people. Um, the, the faint... <laughs> The faint image in the background actually there is the South Pole Telescope. Uh, unfortunately, it looks a heck of a lot better on my monitor than it does on the screen. But uh, you can do an internet search uh, for images, South Pole Telescope, and get this one. It's really kind of cool. Uh, the question is, what does the science say about a South Pole or South Direction approach for Planet X? This is where uh, I have to talk a little bit about geometry. And I personally got my lowest grade in math and geometry class, but this geometry, I swear, is really easy. Take my handy visual aid, a cup. Um, this is Earth. Earth is a little bit more spherical. Uh, this is the north polar axis going up through the top. And if you are standing at the north polar axis, Earth is going to revolve underneath you, and the sky, all these points of light, are going to, as you move, appear as if they are moving, and they're going to move in a circle. Simple enough. If you are on the North Pole, you will be able to see horizon to horizon on either side, meaning that you are going to be able to see a hemisphere or half-sphere of the sky. You will be able, from the North Pole, to see the entire 
northern sky. Half of it, all at once. South Pole? The exact same thing. You'll be able to see the southern hemisphere of the sky all at once, at any given time, as it rotates, although in the other direction from the South Pole, as you look up. So it's true, a South Pole telescope would be able to see a planet X approaching from the South Pole. I left out everything in between for a reason. If you are on the equator, if you look north, you will see the North Celestial Pole. You will see the North Star. If you look due south, you will see the South Celestial Pole, which is marked by absolutely nothing. As the night goes by, and the sky... Whoops, what did I do? Oh, you're seeing my screen. All right, well, let's just change this around and do that and move this. And my point is that as you go through... No, that didn't help either. All right. Yeah, Apple Z, uh, something like that. The issue is, as I'll continue to speak regardless, um, as we go through and we see the night sky, yeah, of course now I can't see what's coming up. On the fly fixing, all right. I'll try to go a little faster now. If you're on the equator, north to south, you will see half the sky, the hemisphere of the sky. As it goes above you over the course of the night, you will see the entire sky. If you are in the southern hemisphere, south of the equator, Argentina, Africa, Australia, anywhere in the southern hemisphere, you will see the entire southern sky. You do not need to be at the south pole to see planet X approaching if it could only come from the south pole. So this conspiracy version of planet X doesn't actually make sense. What about Planet X coming from behind the sun? This is another idea. In fact, this is the one that I mentioned uh, just four nights ago, I believe, on this late-night paranormal radio program. Uh, the claim was that Planet X is sitting there behind the sun, uh, and it's going to wreak havoc uh, sometime in the next four or five months or so. Uh, so could it be? Could it be hiding there? And could it be perhaps uh, you know, that little spot of light right above the A? or at the bottom corner of the screen, not corner, at the bottom middle of the screen, could that be a moon or satellite of Planet X just sort of peeking from behind the sun? Um, and this might sound a little silly to you, but this is what pe some people actually think. So what does the science say? Pretty much all of these phenomena are actually incredibly well understood. Uh, they are all optical phenomena. For example, lens flares, and I, I can hear people who advocate this idea just wanted to scream at me right now because they're like, no, it's not a lens flare. It's a lens flare. It does not matter how expensive your camera lens is. The tens of thousands of dollars of camera lens equipment that the Apollo astronauts brought to the moon, the best camera lenses possible at the time, of course, if you believe they didn't go to the moon, that's a separate conspiracy, maybe next year's talk. <laughs> the best camera lenses at the time, you still get lens flares. The reason is that even... Just a teeny tiny bit of that light is going to be bouncing off of the optics in your camera lens. It's going to be reflecting and refracting around, and that gives you that lens flare. In addition to that, you have weird things with the atmosphere. The atmosphere we tend to think of is fairly opaque, or not opaque, fairly transparent, otherwise I couldn't see you. It's transparent, but it is actually a lens itself because it's curved around the planet. So especially as you go to the really far horizon, you're looking through a lot of it, 
you get weird things. If you have a layer of cold air and hot air and then cold air, light can actually bounce off of those different layers and you can get multiple images of the sun. A similar example to this is, let's say you're driving down a hot road and you look at the road in front of you and it looks like it's really, really wet. Anyone have that experience? Mirage, exactly. The reason that it looks wet is because it's actually acting like a mirror, reflecting the sky. The reason it's reflecting the sky is because you have the very, very hot asphalt next to a much cooler layer of air, even though it's still really hot, and because of that interface between the hot and cold, it acts like a mirror. And these are weird optical phenomena that are well understood, but they're very rare in the sense that if you have the mindset that I'm looking at the sun, I'm taking a picture, I should just get a picture of the sun near the horizon, and I see a duplicate image, I don't know what's going on. But you just have to apply these other kinds of things to everyday phenomenon. Besides that, we've looked. We have looked for other stuff behind the sun. In fact, we have a suite of satellites that is staring at the sun every moment of, well, not every day because in space there's no day. Every moment of every moment, these satellites are watching the sun. In fact, we have stereo A and B that watch the sun at the same time from opposite sides. And so they get this full 360-degree view. We also have, uh, let's see, the Solar Dynamics Observatory, and we have SOHO, that's the other one. Uh, all of these satellites are watching the sun, and it's not like they're just looking directly at the sun, they're looking at a wide field of view around the sun. We see a lot of comets. We discover, these satellites have discovered a lot of comets. Never another planet, for some odd reason. With that in mind, some people say, okay, well, maybe it's just coming from a direction we can't really see it. It's, we're going to ignore all those satellites that watch the sun because NASA's figure, you know, hiding all the data. And it's just coming from behind the sun. And so we can say that my microphone is the sun, uh, this hand is Earth, and this hand is Planet X. And so Planet X is coming right like this, and so we can't possibly see Planet X. Problem is, Earth moves. Earth goes in an orbit. It takes one year to go around the sun. That means that a few days later, or maybe even a month later, Planet X is still coming in and Earth moves, we're going to see it. And yet somehow, a lot of these people uh, try to claim that Planet X is just sitting there behind the sun and it's been there for several years. In fact, again, this guy just a few nights ago on this program with half a million listeners uh, from coast to coast and around the world, and uh, I'm not going to say exactly what radio program it is, people who know, know what it is now. Um, <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, so they were claiming that it's been sitting there since about 2009, and somehow we still have not detected it, but it's always hiding behind that sun. Interesting point of view. Uh, another part of the Planet X phenomenon is that it was actually discovered in 1983. This was done by the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, or IRAS. It is not the IRAS satellite, because that's like saying pin number. It is the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, or IRAS. The claim is that it discovered Planet X in 1983. All of that is based upon a Washington Post article in December of that year that was then allegedly promptly covered up because it was never spoken of again. This is something that we call in um, skepticism, critical thinking, or just in general life, quote mining. If you were to read the Washington Post article, it starts off saying that astronomers have found this object or uh, several objects, and they could be planets in the solar system. And then they stop there. 
If you continue to read the Washington Post article, it says, or it could be distant galaxies or a new type of star or something else. And so what does the science actually say for this manufactured conspiracy? There were anomalous objects found by IRATs, and this is something that's really cool because the IRATs was the first time that we had an infrared satellite in space, and that's really important. Water absorbs infrared light. Infrared light is those wavelengths of light that are redder than red. They're longer, and they are absorbed by our atmosphere. We can do some infrared astronomy from the ground, but it's really hard. You really need to launch a satellite if you want to do any sort of survey work, and IRAS was the first one to do that. And so IRAS got above the atmosphere. It surveyed about 96% of the sky, and we discovered a lot of new stuff with IRAS. Fortunately, not a Planet X, because every single one of those things that we didn't know what they were because we had never seen them before, they were followed up by ground-based observations because then we knew exactly where to look with the best ground-based telescopes, and they were all very, very distant types of galaxies that we didn't really know of before. So it was a new discovery, but it wasn't Planet X. So as I start to wrap this up, we have the question of, could it be there? Just it's not been found yet, because it is potentially possible that there is a planet out there, sort of just like Neptune was, that's just waiting to be discovered. It obeys the laws of physics. It doesn't do weird things with Anunnaki coming to Earth, but it's just out there. The science says, sure, why not? It is entirely possible that there are other objects out there in our solar system. Well, we know pretty much for a fact, as much as you can know for a fact, that there are other objects in the solar system that we have not yet discovered. Some of them could be planet-like. And I say planet-like because we don't really have a great definition for the term planet. So it's one of those, you know it if you see it, kind of things. So it is possible that there is something out there. But we do have limits, and if you want to search for Planet X, well, you have to operate within certain limits. And this is something that um, was done very recently. So I mentioned that we had the IRAS, not IRAS satellite, the IRAS survey in the 1980s for all of these infrared sources. We have done other infrared searches since then. There was the TUMAS, which is the Two Micron All Sky Survey. And we also have the satellite recently launched and recently completed its mission called WISE. WISE did a lot of searches for asteroids, and the reason why you want to look for some of these rocky objects in the solar system in infrared light is because infrared light is the light at which planets glow. So the sun emits most of its light in more visible wavelengths, so the stuff that we can see. Planets, even Earth for example, emit a lot of their light in infrared because they are cooler objects, and so they emit a lot of their light in lower, not lower, longer wavelengths of light. Um, this is actually another reason why you want to go into space if you're doing an, uh, infrared observing, because the planet itself actually glows. And you also want to cool your equipment down very, very low, because otherwise you're just going to take pictures of your equipment as opposed to the sky. So WISE was a very sensitive telescope and spacecraft that did all-sky mapping for asteroids and potential hazards to the planet. But because of this WISE survey, 
it was a wise, wise survey, um, it was able to put limits on what a missing planet in the solar system could possibly be. One of those limits is that there is no Saturn-sized object to 10,000 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is the distance, average distance between the Earth and the Sun. It's about 93 million miles, or 149.6 thousand, no, thousand million kilometers. It's a big distance. And Pluto, remember, is about 40 astronomical units. So WISE has ruled out a planet X that is the size of Saturn out to about 10,000 astronomical units. It's ruled out an object the size of Jupiter out to 26,000 astronomical units, which is about half a light year. It's possible there's something smaller that's out there and that's closer. We just didn't have the sensitivity. Pluto averages 40 AU from the sun. So this is crazy far out that we have pretty much within the limits of WISE ruled anything out. And let's say you don't like the sensitivity and limits that WISE suggested. Okay, cut this by a factor of 10. Sure, we have ruled out a Saturn-sized object to 1,000 astronomical units, which is again several times, uh, if I can do quick math in my head, what, 20 times the distance, not 20, 200 times the distance to Pluto. There's some order of magnitude in there. Um, it's the easy math that I can't do in my head. We also have a limit from science that any planet X should follow the laws of physics. Um, if it's not following the laws of physics, that's kind of really weird. Um, but it would be interesting. And this is something that a lot of, uh, a lot of more people who are conspiratorial-minded don't quite understand, is that scientists like to discover new stuff. Uh, raise your hand if you know the name Albert Einstein. Okay, so most of you are still awake. <laughs> you know Albert Einstein because he formulated relativity. Raise your hand if you have ever heard of gravity probe B. Okay, so three or four of, four of you, I think. Uh, gravity probe B was a test, a test of Einstein's theory of relativity. It was maybe the thousandth test that has been done. Most of you haven't heard of it because it just redid previous science. Now granted, testing an established idea is incredibly important. It's only from testing and withstanding those tests that we can actually see if science works. I mean, that's the whole point of science, is to develop a model that will predict what we can observe and what we can see. Gravity probe B matched exactly Einstein's theory of relativity, and that's why very few of you have ever heard of it. However, you have heard of Einstein. Same thing would happen if planet, with planet X. If we were to discover a new planet in our solar system, that would be a really big deal. And you would know that person's name, or that team's name, or that instrument's name. But we haven't found it yet. And so, my conclusion is that there could indeed still be a very large planet out there in the solar system. It's not that funny, but it's something that's interesting. <laughs> The conspiracy, the hype, and the fear-mongering, however, is not based in reality. And... <laughs> okay, that one wasn't supposed to be funny. <laughs> I guess Batman is funny. So... <laughs> so... <laughs> sorry. So, in this talk, I've only addressed a handful of the different kinds of phenomena that are related to Planet X. 
but I've tried to do it in such a way as to bring in different kinds of ideas and different twi not twinges, but tinges of conspiracy or geometry or history or something that perhaps at least some of them were interesting to some of you. And so with that said, I believe I still have um, several minutes, at least five to ten, uh, four questions, although I will take one moment real quick to say that, uh, again, I do have a podcast if this was at all interesting to you. Uh, the link is down there for those who can see it, and now I'll take That was a live recording from the Denver Comic Con on Sunday of May 24th of 2015. I do apologize for the popping that came in about 10 minutes into the recording. I did try every filter that I could find in Audacity. Uh, unfortunately, well, it is better than it was, the popping remained. With that in mind, thank you for listening, and to anyone new who has come to the podcast from Denver Comic Con, welcome. Uh, enjoy the past archives while you wait for the next episode, which should be out on or about June 1st on Big Bang Denialism, and the episode after that, due out approximately June 16th, is going to probably be about different ways to show that the Earth is older than 6,000 years without using radiometric dating. That wraps up this topic for the 132nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. That's S, not F. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro. P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell your friends, your family, and two random people you'll never meet in real life. And, as evidenced in this episode, I do events! 